The scripture reading is from the first from first Peter chapter four verses twelve through nineteen. Suffering for being a Christian. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you are you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be back with you, friends. I have missed you, missed getting to share God's Word with you. It has been a hard last few months for me and the kids, as you are aware, and will continue to be a challenging season. But I just want to say before we dive into our text for this morning that I am so grateful for all of the love and support and prayers and encouragement that so many of you have given. And I am especially grateful for Jordan and the elders doing a wonderful job filling in in my absence with preaching and pastoral care. If you haven't yet and you see any of them, make sure to thank them for all of the ways that they have helped. It is a good thing that the church does not rest on any single man or woman, but that God has given us this body together of believers to support each other. But with that said, let's pray together and then look at this text. God and Father, pray now as we come to your word that your spirit would be moving and active in our hearts, applying it to us. Even though we are sinful people, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and our eyes that we might see the truth and goodness and beauty of your ways in your word. And I pray that you would be with me, though I am a sinful person, as I proclaim it, that your truth would be heard. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you haven't picked this up from the last few weeks as we've been preaching through 1 Peter, the whole book of 1 Peter is about suffering for Christians. Peter is writing to these believers that are scattered all across modern-day Turkey, and he knows that they're about to face significant persecution, and he's preparing them to suffer. Now, for most of the book, that suffering is kind of in the background. It gets mentioned in a number of places, but Peter is giving them these truths and these applications for their lives so that they might faithfully persevere under suffering. But now, in this passage, Peter, in many ways, takes that subtext and makes it explicit. He directly addresses the topic of suffering as Christians. And so here's what we're going to do with this text. First, we're just going to look at this text and ask, what is it that Peter is telling us to do in the face of suffering? And then we're going to ask, how in the world can he call us to do that? So first, what is Peter telling us to do? And then how can he do that? Let's look at the text. Just start in verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Now, I just have to say, I have always loved this verse first for its realism. Do not be surprised, Peter says, at the fiery trial. Don't act like it's something strange because it isn't. We should expect life to bring trials and suffering. Too often, when that happens, we treat it as if it's unexpected. And we're like, what is happening? What's going on? But Peter says, don't be surprised. And don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Before we dig into the rest of the text, we need to discuss what does Peter mean when he talks about fiery trials? What is the kind of suffering he has in view? And we need to ask that because there's clearly one kind of suffering that Peter isn't actually discussing in this text, and that is suffering for doing evil things. In verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. There is some suffering in life that is a direct result of specific sins. A direct result of specific sins, meaning like if you throw all your money after chasing worldly pleasure and then you end up broke, that is a suffering that's a direct result of those sins. If you meddle in other people's business and they get mad at you and turn against you, that is a direct result of those specific sins. Now to be clear, God shows great mercy to us even in that kind of suffering. Those sins do not define us, and there is grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers us even for the times that we bring such trouble on ourselves. But that is not what Peter's talking about here, because that kind of suffering, what it should produce in us is repentance. What we should do when we suffer like that is we should recognize the the consequences of our sins, and we should grieve them and seek to turn from them. But so Peter says he's not talking about that with the fiery trial. Then there's a second kind of suffering that Peter clearly is including in it, and that is suffering persecution, suffering for following Jesus and doing the things that Jesus calls us to do. So, for example, in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There's an expectation in Scripture that following Jesus, trying to follow him, will cost us in this world. That people will look at us strangely, that society will be set up in ways that causes us to be disadvantaged. That is a sort of suffering that's included here. And going back to verse 12, we should not be surprised when we face that kind of suffering. But there's this third category of suffering, and that's what I think we really need to to wrestle with. Because what about when we struggle, and it is not a direct result of specific sins, and it's also not a direct result of obeying and following Jesus? Because a lot of our suffering fits into that category. People get old, people get sick, people get cancer and Alzheimer's disease and injuries, people experience terrible tragedies, people have situations that seem to conspire against them, they lose their money in a bad investment or They lose their business because there's a disease pandemic sweeping our nation. People die, 100% of them. What do we do with all of that suffering? Now, some Christians will point out that there is a sense in which all of that suffering is still a result of sin in general, and that is true. Our world is under judgment because of human sin and rebellion. Everything that is wrong with our world is ultimately the consequence 
of the fact that we have rebelled against our Lord and sought to go our own way, and we are reaping the destruction that we've sown. That's true, but you cannot draw straight lines from that sort of general sense of sin to the suffering that specific people experience. There are people who live relatively righteous lives in the world, and they experience terrible grief and hardship, and there are profligate sinners who are powerful and successful and seem to suffer very little. You cannot draw the direct lines for that kind of suffering the way you can for those specific sins causing specific consequences. So what about that suffering? Is that included here? Well, I think that yes, Peter sees all of that as part of the fiery trial that he addresses in this text. For a couple of reasons. First of all, even in verse 16 here, we see Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Notice that isn't just if anyone suffers for Christ, which Peter talked about earlier, but if anyone suffers as a Christian. Back in 1 Peter 1, Peter calls Christians to rejoice even though for now they have been grieved with various trials, which just means all kinds of hard things happening. In chapter 3, one of the groups Peter speaks to is slaves who have unjust masters. And he doesn't just mean masters that persecute them because of their faith. He means masters who are just bad, cruel people. And he calls them to persevere in that suffering. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter roots all of our suffering in the fact that Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ suffered in the flesh, which is not just about Jesus facing persecution, not even just about the cross for Jesus, but is about the whole realm of human suffering that Jesus entered into when he as God came as a human being. That Jesus faced tiredness and physical weakness and opposition from people and betrayal by friends and dread at the future and grief in the face of death. All of that was stuff that Jesus suffered in the flesh. And so all of that suffering is included by Peter. So Peter's saying we're talking about all of that, all of our suffering, with the exception of those times when we're facing the direct consequences for our actions. That's what we're talking about. And what he says, first, as we said, is do not be surprised when you suffer. Yes, check yourself to make sure that there's not stuff going on in your life, but expect suffering in the Christian life. But that's not the command he gives. He says, more than just expect it, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now we're going to talk more about that verse in just a minute. But did you hear the command? It is to rejoice. We get the same idea in verse 16, which we also heard at the end of it. Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. Let him praise God in that name of Christian. In our suffering, we are to praise God. And this is hardly the only place where the Bible gives this startling command. James says it, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul says it, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Jesus says it, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice even in suffering. In all suffering, whether it's persecution, whether it's the kind of normal suffering that is a part of this broken world, we are called to rejoice in it. So that's the command. And then that raises an obvious question. 
How can Peter say that? What is it that could possibly allow us to rejoice even in our suffering? And I think in this passage, Peter gives three answers, three ways we can rejoice in our suffering, three truths we have to understand if we're to do it. And I just want to say up front, we really need all three of these truths together for it to make sense. But the first truth, the first answer is this, our suffering is within God's will. We can rejoice in our suffering because our suffering is within God's will. That might be a startling statement to you. So look at verse 19. It says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now here's the question you need to ask. What does that mean there, according to God's will? Some people read it like this. They say what that means is that they're suffering for doing God's will, which is another way of Peter talking about suffering persecution. But the problem with that is it doesn't really fit. It doesn't fit with the rest of that verse about entrusting ourselves to our creator, which seems to emphasize God's rule over creation. And it doesn't fit with the rest of 1 Peter. Back in 1 Peter 3, Peter says basically the same thing. He says this, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now that verse isn't ambiguous. It says you are suffering even for doing good, and that is a part of the will of God. Which means that the second option makes more sense. What Peter says in according to God's will means that even our suffering is within the will of God. It is ultimately under his control and a part of his sovereign will for our lives. And I think that's what Peter is saying. Now look, I know we can wrestle with that idea. There are plenty of Christians, I think, who just try to pretend like the Bible doesn't say that, like suffering is somehow a divine accident or a regrettable mistake, and I get it. So first, let's be clear about what, what Scripture does and doesn't say about God's control over the hard parts of life. On the one hand, Scripture tells us that God's sovereignty is over everything. Everything is under God's powerful control. So Ephesians 1.11, famously, it says, In Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You can't get clearer than that. God works all things, which means everything, according to the counsel of his will. And in case we try to weasel out of it, the Bible in a number of places makes clear that includes the hard things. Just one example from Isaiah 45. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Calamity there means bad stuff that happens to us. I am the Lord who does all these things. So all things are under God's sovereign control. However, not all things flow equally from God's heart. Now, this might be a hard thing to understand, but let me just show this to you. One example. In the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament, Lamentations is this five-chapter poem of grief about the destruction of Jerusalem when Israel is led into exile. It is this gut-wrenching, tearful poem, but Lamentations is laid out in this form of Hebrew poetry called a chiasm which you don't have to worry about that fancy word, but a chiasm basically means that it's laid out like a pyramid, which means that the middle is the point, and then the parts, as you work out from the middle, kind of connect with each other. And so in Lamentations, chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 4 and 5 are full of grief. 
But then chapter three, in the middle of it, has this section of hope. And in the middle of that section on hope, the very central lines of lamentations are this. It says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So God does afflict, but he does not afflict from his heart. He does bring things that cause us grief, but his heart is compassion and steadfast love. How does that work? Some of it is mysterious, but here's what is clear. God is in control of all things, and that includes the broken parts of our world, but not everything that he is in control of is equally pleasing to him, equally flows from the core of his being, or is equally what we should understand as defining him. And if that's a hard idea for you to get, let me just suggest here are two helpful things to consider as you wrestle with it. One, that is why God's story is one where love and compassion win in the end. We are in the middle of the story of our lives and in the middle of the story of the universe. And one of the hard things about being in the middle of the story is that it, you can lose sight of what the author is up to. Like if you ever read a book and you have these characters and you love these characters and hard things are happening to them and you feel almost angry at the author in the middle of the story, like why are you doing this to these characters? I mean, that, that is real. But of course, you have to finish the book, right? To understand what the author is doing, to understand where his heart is, you have to have the story as a whole. And the story as a whole is one where death is destroyed and grief and evil and sin and suffering are undone and God dries all of our tears. That is what his heart is. And also we need to remember that when we talk about that control that God has over suffering, his heart can be seen in the fact that that control is especially pronounced in terms of his own suffering. And in the story of scripture, God enters into the story. And in fact, one of the things the Bible is clearest about God's sovereignty over is his own crucifixion and death. So all of that said, our suffering, while it in a sense grieves God and his heart aches in the face of it, is very much within his will. How does that first truth help us to rejoice in our suffering? The answer is this, only if that is true can your suffering not be meaningless. Only if that is true can your suffering not be meaningless. There's this thing that I think is hugely destructive that I hear, that I've heard personally, where people try to comfort us by telling us that our suffering, that hard things in our lives are out of God's control that he didn't want this, that he didn't intend this. And that sounds good. It's meant as a comfort. Um, I, mean, I mean, I heard that, right? I had these people that, that basically said things like, well, God has nothing to do with cancer as we faced Elizabeth's cancer. You know, he, he just wishes it wasn't this way. And weirdly, those people also were the same people that insisted that God was going to heal her. And I'm not actually sure how it fits together because if God can heal disease, then that means he's in control of it. But, but anyway, the point is, they meant that as a comfort. And you even feel when you hear that, like, oh, that's comforting. But it's not. It's terrible. If we live in a universe where God is not sovereign, we live in the most horrific universe imaginable. Because it means that people die and God's like, man, I wish that wasn't happening. And there's no meaning in it and no purpose in it. God just can't do anything about it. If God is not above something in the universe, then it is equal to God. 
Now, yes, that said, realizing that our suffering is a part of God's will is hard. We wrestle with God in the midst of it. But even that's not a bad thing. In fact, an important part of the spiritual life is wrestling with God. The word Israel means he who wrestles with God. Because on the far end of that wrestling is the hope of comfort. Because it means that the universe is not out of control. Nothing is affecting us that God does not ultimately reign supreme over, that God cannot work for our good, and so we can find meaning even in the hardest parts of our lives because we have the assurance that our loving Father is at work even in them. And that's Peter's point. It's why he tells us that we then are to trust our Creator while doing good because we can move forward with purpose and meaning in our lives, and even suffering does not have the power to remove that. So we can rejoice in suffering as Christians because it's within God's will. But that's only part of the truth. And if that's all we said, I think it would be a kind of harsh truth. Second, we can rejoice in suffering, Peter says, because we've been delivered from God's condemnation. We have been delivered from God's condemnation. Read verses 16 and 17. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this can actually be a confusing couple of verses, and we need to talk about what Peter is doing with the word judgment. Because on the one hand, he says that we are experiencing God's judgment as God's people. That judgment begins with the household of God. But at the same time, he says that we are somehow not experiencing God's judgment in the way that the world experiences it. Um, when he says, what will be the outcome for the world? So, so what is Peter saying? In what sense do we experience God's judgment as Christians? Is that even a thing? I think a lot of us are told that we're not supposed to, to use that language. And in what sense are we not? What's going on? So first of all, Peter is not talking here about God judging individual Christians for specific sins. Remember, in verse 15, he makes clear that that sort of suffering is a separate discussion. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about a general sense in which we as God's people experience God's judgment. And what Peter is speaking out of is that general reality that the world as a whole is under God's judgment because of sin. And that is why there is suffering in the world. God created a world without pain or sorrow or death. And because of our sin and rebellion, the world is now under judgment and we experience that when we suffer. So that is the sense in which all of us experience that judgment of God on the world. But there's a difference. We saw it there when he talks about those who do not obey the gospel. We see it more clearly in verse 18. Peter quotes the book of Proverbs, and he says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, by scarcely saved, I think we can hear that wrong. We think we're like barely saved. Maybe a better way to translate that is saved with difficulty. Peter's not saying that God barely saves us. Rather, he's stressing that it took this great work of God's grace to save those of us who are a part of his people. It took the incarnation and life and death of Jesus Christ. And so here's Peter's point then. He's saying, yes, the world is under judgment, 
and you experience that judgment when you suffer, but because of the work of Jesus, you have ultimately been delivered from judgment, and you will be saved. So even as you experience the brokenness of the world, you can have hope and joy in your salvation. That might be a hard idea to get your head around, so let me come at it from another angle. There's other places in the Bible where this difference is, they use two words to explain this, that while we all experience God's judgment, believers experience it as discipline, and those without Christ experience it as condemnation. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's the simplest verse that puts all these ideas together. This is what Paul says there. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We as believers experience that judgment on the world as discipline so that we are not condemned. So we experience it as discipline. And again, even that word, we can have the wrong idea about. That, that word is not primarily about sort of like disciplining your kids, right? You're in trouble, young man. Instead, the word actually can just mean teach as well. And it's the word that you use whenever you try to correct or shape someone like an athlete disciplines themselves, Paul talks about elsewhere. And, and so the idea is basically that God is using suffering to discipline, shape, teach us, make us more like Jesus. So that is what we're experiencing. But, but, but scripture also is saying we are not condemned, meaning destroyed and rejected. God could judge our sin in that way. He could just execute us for our crimes. But the powerful hope of the gospel is he does not do that. As Paul says in Romans, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So while we all as human beings experience suffering, if we are in Christ, we experience it as not condemnation, not punishment, not rejection by God, but we experience it as a discipline that is meant to shape and form us to be more like Jesus. So that helps us to rejoice in suffering as Christian as well. How? Well, it tells us what God's purpose is in our suffering. The first truth tells us that suffering is within the will of God. And then the second truth starts to tell us what God's will is. And that's that it is for our good, not our destruction. God's will is for our true good, not our destruction. Now, for that to make sense, first, we need to just make something clear. When we talk about true good, the best thing for you as a human being is to become more like Jesus Christ. The best thing for all of us as human beings is to become more like Jesus. It's better than anything in the world. It's better than our comfort. It is better than our happiness in that shallow way the world thinks of happiness. It's better than our prosperity, our security, than anything. And we have to say that up front because part of why we struggle with these ideas is that we get confused about what it means for our true good. Like I remember when I was in college, when I was taught to share the gospel in one way, starting by telling people that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true. And that method of evangelism helped many people. But, but people usually hear wonderful plan for their life and they think, oh, that means I'm going to be successful. That means he wants me to have an easy life. But God's wonderful plan is to make us more like Jesus, including the cross. So God wants our true good. And here's what that means. It means that suffering is miserable, but part of what we can hope in and rejoice in is that we don't have to wonder what God is doing as we experience it. 
We can hate it and weep in it, but we don't have to wonder what God is doing. In those dark moments when we think, is God just out to get me? Is he rejecting me? We know that the answer to that question is no. We are not under condemnation if we belong to Jesus Christ. And more than that, we can know what God is working in our suffering. That our suffering is a purifying fire that is working to make us more like Jesus Christ. I mean, I get it. There are days that that does not feel that exciting to me. I'd maybe be a little less like Jesus if I could get rid of some of the suffering. But that is me desiring what is easy rather than what is truly good. Inasmuch as my hope longs to be like Jesus and to be closer to him and to know him better, then I can rejoice even in the midst of suffering because suffering cannot stop that from happening. So that's two answers. And then there's one last one. We can rejoice as we suffer as Christians because our suffering is united with Christ's suffering. Our suffering is united with Christ's. Look at verse 13 again. It says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's saying something crazy here. He's saying that when we suffer, as long as it's not suffering for sin, but when we suffer, we are somehow actually sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus suffered the brokenness of the world and the persecution of those who despised him. And when we suffer any of those same things, we are actually united with Christ. What does that mean? That can sound like spiritual mumbo-jumbo. Well, here's what we have to understand. Too often as Christians, we have this incomplete idea of where we stand in relationship to Jesus. If you've been around a lot of churches, you'll hear people talk a lot about having a personal relationship with Jesus, which is true and good, but a lot of times it's not really explained. Like, what does that mean? What is that relationship? Is it like my relationship with my friend? Is it like my relationship with my boss at work or my congressperson or that guy at the DMV? I mean, I have different relationships with all of those people. Scripture says that if we truly belong to him, Our relationship with Jesus is actually different and deeper than any human relationship. Jesus is not just some buddy up in the sky. He's not even some invisible presence next to us. What scripture says over and over is that we are actually in Jesus and he is actually in us. We are spiritually connected to him, made a part of him, such that the life that Jesus lived, that is actually somehow our life. And the life that we are living right now is somehow actually caught up in the life of Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, it's ultimately the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives in us and comes from Christ. And that's why Peter in verse 14 immediately talks about the Holy Spirit. He says that you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, God's spirit, when we talk about that, right, that's not a feeling or a weird abstraction. If you are a Christian, God's spirit is actually a part of you. In fact, it's the truest part of you. It actually permeates your soul and your body intertwined with you, your eyes and your hands and your hearts and thoughts. They're all woven together with the spirit right now. He is a part of you. You are a part of him. And so Jesus Christ is a part of you and you're a part of him. Just think about that for a minute. Just pause. You are caught up in Jesus Christ right now, and you are a part of him. 
He's a part of you. Think about the depth and profundity of that. Think about that. And there's mystery there again. And there's a lot more truth and beauty there than we're going to dig into this morning. But when you understand that fact, here's what Peter is saying about our suffering. He's saying the story we tell about Jesus is a story about God powerfully redeeming through suffering. That Jesus comes and suffers all things, including death and condemnation, and he does that for us. He suffers and dies, and then he rises again and triumphs over it, and life lies at the far end of death, and ultimately Christ's suffering is used to bring salvation and life. And what Peter is saying is that because we are in Jesus and he is in us, that story is the story of our suffering as well. Not just in some metaphorical sense. Not, I'm not saying this is some fairy tale, some fable. Actually, like truly, the story of your life is the story of Jesus because, as he says, exactly the same spirit and exactly the same power that were at work in Jesus' story are at work in yours. If we are in Christ, on the one hand, we should expect suffering. This is why Peter says, why are you surprised when you face fiery trials, right? Because we have Jesus' story, but if we are in Christ, that means that we have hope that the ending of that story is the ending of ours as well. So let me try all of this together. How does this teach us to rejoice even in our suffering? Instead of talking about it abstractly, let me just speak personally for a minute. Obviously, we have walked through a significant season of suffering as a family, and we're not in the far end of it, right? We are still in the middle of it in many ways, grieving. I'm figuring out how to be a widower and a single dad, and suffering is miserable, right? Again, none of this is some happy pill that makes it all okay, but here's what I have come to believe for a while now. Here's the thing. Suffering is miserable, But that isn't the question. The question is this. It is, will that destroy you? Will it diminish you as a person? Or will you move forward and continue living in the midst of suffering? Will it destroy and diminish you? Or will you move forward and continue living? And by continue living, I don't just mean not killing yourself, right? In depths of despair. I mean, there are times when even that seems appealing. But I mean living. I mean seeking to love and grow and find joy and and, and serve and build up the kingdom, living life, following Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. What makes the difference between suffering that destroys us and suffering that we continue to live in the midst of? What makes the difference? And don't just say Jesus in some abstract way. What does that mean? Here's what I've come to believe. It is not the degree of suffering that makes the difference. I think that's what a lot of people think. But honestly, I have met people who have experienced, while I sympathize with them and it's hard, who have frankly experienced very average amounts of suffering in their life and it has wrecked them. And I have met people who have been brutalized by life but have come through it with a depth and a beauty that's unimaginable. What makes the difference is not the degree of the suffering but the greatness of your purpose. What makes the difference is not the degree of your suffering, but the greatness of your purpose. That if your life has enough purpose, you will shoulder the burden, no matter how great it is, and keep moving forward because it is worth it. And if you lack that purpose, if you lose it, you're going to get wrecked. 
Now, here's the thing. Talking straight, first of all, there are purposes other than God that can help you shoulder significant burdens. For instance, if you have kids, they can be a great help. If you're suffering in some other area of your life, you can recognize this purpose you have in them. Or a spouse or your work, there are purposes that can help you with some amount of suffering. It can work for some amount of time. But none of those things can provide you a purpose that can truly last because all of those things can be taken away. I remember back years ago when Rebecca was in the hospital and we first kind of experienced suffering, Elizabeth and I did. We thought she might die. I mean, part of what gave me purpose was my love for my wife and my desire to serve her. And that was helpful. But here's the thing. If that was the purpose of my life, she's dead now. If you build your life on on your kids or your, your spouse or your job or any of that, those are such incredibly fragile things. You just have to pray they aren't taken away. And if they're what you're living your life for, who are you praying to? What Jesus provides is a purpose that is great enough and indestructible enough that no amount of suffering in this world can remove it and that you can continue to live regardless of what life brings your way. Because our suffering is within God's will, we know that our purpose cannot be destroyed by it. Because our purpose is his purpose. He who is at work through us is also the one who's sovereign over the hard things happening to us. He is greater than our suffering. And so we know that our purpose can endure. Because we've been delivered from God's condemnation, we know that God's purposes will not undo our purpose. He is working for our true good to make us more like Jesus. And if that is what you are seeking in your life, then the good news is that that purpose is guaranteed. Not without suffering, not without growth and struggle, but even if everything else in life is stripped away, God will still be working to discipline and teach and shape you to be more like Jesus. And because our suffering is united with Christ, we can hope that even that suffering is being used to work towards victory in life. Because our story is the story of his death and resurrection. God uses the cross to achieve glory and salvation. And he will use our suffering the same way. Again, one last time. None of that makes it easy or pleasant to suffer. Christ wept and bled in grief at the suffering he knew we would face. But we can live. We can, as Peter says, rejoice in our suffering because God is great and he offers and guarantees us a purpose that none of the brokenness of this world can destroy. Let's walk forward in that purpose. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Father, life in this age is so often hard. For so many of us in so many ways. And I acknowledge this, Lord. I am so mindful of the, the wounds and scars in my heart and in all of our hearts. And I recognize that there are times that we wrestle with you in that, Lord. And that's, that's not wrong, but, but, but that can feel hard. But Father, here is my hope and my prayer for us, that we might find great comfort and peace in the fact that you have gone before us into suffering, that you yourself suffered all things, that you died and rose again over them, that you are with us in our suffering, that not a hair falls from our head, but by the will of our Father in heaven, 
that you are near to us in love and tender compassion and that you will rule over us as king and that you are continuing to work in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus Christ till the day when he returns and all things are made new. Father, I long for that story to be brought to its end, but I pray that you would be working goodness and life and beauty in the midst of these people right now in the midst of our suffering and pain. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.